finishing up our short little series that we've been going through over the last month on uh, doing church God's way. So if you would please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. Luke 24, the very last chapter of the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be looking at uh, the way that this book closes and Christ's commission to his church. In Luke 24, beginning in verse 44, it says, Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning with Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. The title of this sermon is Encouragement for Christ's Witnesses. Encouragement for Christ's Witnesses. And I desire this morning, dear church, that you would be encouraged, but be encouraged to be Christ's witness. You know, um, this uh, past, the past few weeks, and the next fo- the following few weeks, uh, you can really see some super fans and their devotion to certain teams, especially in this area. Uh, now, you know, I don't want to, well, there's no such thing as jinxing anything. There's no such thing as luck. But, uh, you know, here in the Bay Area, we're familiar with disappointment when it comes to sports, right? (laughs) We trust that that's not going to happen today. But we have so many teams in this area that, you know, pick your poison. and, And I'm certain that if you're any sort of a sports fan or know someone who is, uh, you know those critical games. Uh, there was one even last night where it was just such an intense game uh, between the Warriors and the Lakers. And uh, went to double overtime and, uh, well, it didn't end the way that we had hoped. And, you know, there's, especially when somebody is a quote-unquote super fan, when the result of a game doesn't go the way that they hope, uh, there is great disappointment, isn't there? And it just ruins the day. It can ruin someone's week or month or year. Uh, now, if you're not a super fan or a sports fan, I mean, we, we all experience this kind of disappointment especially when we have high hopes for something and then it just doesn't turn out the way we had hoped. 
whether that's an expensive steak that you spent money on, a tomahawk steak that you, that you bought and you're planning on just enjoying that thing and you overcook it, right? And it's like, it doesn't matter how expensive it is, it's garbage now. Or, you know, any other complicated recipe that just took stages and stages and you built and built this, this masterpiece of a dish and then find out that you use salt instead of sugar. And it's just all the effort is just one heaping mound of disappointment. It's a big letdown, isn't it? Well, of course, these things pale in comparison to what is happening here in our passage. But uh, it's just a taste of the letdown and the disappointment that the disciples of Christ felt uh, in this last chapter of the Gospel of Luke. In the context of chapter 24, the disciples were in a state of hopelessness. They thought that Jesus was the Christ. They assumed that he would change everything. But their leader had died on the cross and they saw him buried. And all hope was lost. It was ramping up to be some glorious thing, and they thought Christ was going to bring in the kingdom, and then he dies by the hands of godless men. You can imagine the hopelessness, the doubt. Was this all a waste? Was he a hoax? The downcast, depressed soul within them and even to the point of being filled with and battling with unbelief. We see this throughout chapter 24, for example, uh, when the women came and reported the empty tomb to the disciples in Luke 24, verse 11. These words appear to them as nonsense. He's risen? You saw angels? There's an empty tomb? That's just silly. Come on, get real. And then verse 17 says, uh, as the disciples, the two disciples were walking along the Emmaus Road and Jesus converses with them, he says to them in verse 17, what are these words that you are discussing with one another as you are walking? And they stood still and were looking sad. So they couldn't hide it. They wore their emotions on their sleeves And listen to their thought process. Listen to um, their attitude. In verse 21, they say, you know, all this happened. But we were hoping, we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. That hope was all but lost at this point for the disciples. They were hoping. They had hope. They had high expectations, high hopes for the future. Finally, the Redeemer of Israel was come, and then he dies. And what a humiliating death he died on the cross. Verse uh, 36, leading up to our passage, this whole chapter is... Is, is Christ's ministry to his disciples in the midst of hopelessness. 
And we're, what we're going to see is He is the source of their hope. Amen. That they don't need to be hopeless anymore. And follow with me back up in, in, in verse 36. Now, while they were telling these things, He Himself stood in their midst. So they're in the upper room, and the disciples are speaking, and Jesus just appears there. And He says to them, Peace to you. And... Or, but being startled and frightened, they were thinking that they were seeing a spirit. So they couldn't even believe their eyes. And he says to them, he gets to the heart, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? And, and very patiently, he, he holds out his hands. He says, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and blood, as you see that I have. I'm not a spirit. Hope is not lost. Here, touch me. Look, look at the scars. It's really me. When he had said this in verse 40, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they were still not believing, they, they still couldn't believe it because of their joy. It was just too good to be true. They were marveling. He said to them, again, an act of patience, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of a, bro a broiled fish and he took it and and ate it before them. So not only could they reach out and touch him and, and see his scars and feel his scars, they could see him, uh, you know, eat what they ate. And that didn't just fall through, you know, the skeleton and land on the floor because he was a real body. These disciples were consumed with doubt and hopelessness of Christ's resurrection, but Jesus here patiently assures them that he is alive. And he patiently shows them through physical means that this is true. But he did not rely solely on their touching him and watching him eat. In our passage, Jesus instructs the disciples from Scripture. He knows that no matter how long they sit there and watch him eat broiled fish and how many times they reach out and touch him, what's really going to minister to their hearts, what's really going to give them hope, what's really going to lift them out of the despair that they're in is the word of God. And so he says in verse 44, now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. That all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. First point this morning is, Christian, you can have encouragement to be a witness of Christ because of fulfilled prophecy. Number one, fulfilled prophecy. Again, he says to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. And we see here, again, the patience of Christ with his disciples. He's not telling them anything new, really. He has been telling them that he was to be crucified and buried and that he would rise again victorious over death. And he, he, he reminds them, I've, I've been telling you this the whole time. You really have no grounds for hopelessness. Why? Because it's all going according to plan. That's why. 
If they had only listened to Jesus' words the first times, they would not be in such despair and hopelessness. And so Jesus brings back his teachings, brings back the revelation of God, brings back the word of God to their remembrance. And he says that all things which are written about me must be fulfilled. All things which were written about Christ had to be fulfilled. Not only had Jesus been teaching them these things, but all the Old Testament scriptures have been teaching these things for hundreds and thousands of years. The, the, the word uh, written about Christ is not uh, the past tense. It's not the aorist tense in the Greek. That is, it doesn't say the things that were written about me. It's the perfect tense. It's, it is they are written. And that comes across in our translation. The things that were written by the uh, prophets of God are written today. That is, when those promises were made, when those prophecies were made of the coming Messiah, they are still binding upon creation and upon history. That is, they were written and they stand written still. Everything is going to plan. And he says, well, where were they written? In the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. That is all of the Old Testament, all of it, Christian, finds its ultimate fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ. There's a reason why you should be reading your Old Testament. Not so that you can answer Bible trivia questions when the opportunity comes. It's so that you can know your Savior more, even in the Old Testament. Now, Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms that Jesus mentions here, those are the three uh, main divisions of literature in the Old Testament. Moses is, is the history uh, and the historical books, especially the Pentateuch. And then the, the prophets are all the, the major and minor prophets that are usually towards the end of our Old Testament copies. And then the Psalms are just all the poetic literature, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and so on. Now, Jesus is saying here, by naming all three categories of the Old Testament, he's saying all of the Old Testament and every book of the Old Testament speak of me. So, the book of Jonah, the book of Ezra, uh, the book of Nehemiah, of course, the Psalms and the Proverbs, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, they all speak about me and everything in between. It's all about Christ. And he says that the things about Christ that were anticipated in the Old Testament had to be fulfilled. To fulfill means that Christ 
In a sense, you can think of the Old Testament as this, this large basin, and Christ fills in that large basin uh, with himself, his person and his works. The Old Testament is like the, the, the container, and Christ is the substance. The Old Testament is the form. Christ is the essence. The Old Testament is the shadow. Christ is the real thing. Christ fill, fills up the Old Testament to its fullest, fulfilled, to fill to the fullest. That is, to the brim, so that there is nothing else lacking. It's all there in the Old Testament. All the glories of Christ, uh, though uh, obscure at times and though a mystery at times, we see the New Testament turn the dimmer switch all the way up. And the full light of revelation is shed upon the person and work of Christ. And we see, it's, we've been, though we've been looking dimly into the Old Testament and we could make forms and shapes and kind of make out a, 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 a shape of, of Jesus and redemption, now the light is turned up and we see, oh, I've been looking at Jesus the whole time. That's what he means. That's the idea of fulfilling all of the Old Testament. And this is what he already said in back in verse 27 of uh, Luke 24, uh, where it says in verse 27, Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. So this is how Christ viewed the Old Testament. This is how we need to view the Old Testament. It was a book about the Messiah, from sufferings to glory. It, was, it is all about what Christ would do, and especially in, uh, in his last days of his passion, of his sacrifice, his, his death, burial, and resurrection. And the Old Testament, if, if, if you have ever read it, you'll notice that there's all these themes of covenant and kingdom and Israel and commandments and there's poetry and there's history. But all of these things in the Old Testament are pieces of a broader story. And the story is Christ himself. He is what's called the meta-narrative. He's the big story. Not just of the Bible, but of all of history. And Christian, of your whole life, it's the story of the person and work of Christ. That's your story. That's the plot line. Is his glory in your life. Now it's important to note that Jesus saw this as applying to all of the Old Testament. He did not touch upon every text. But every category of text from a Jewish understanding. Again, Moses, the prophets, and, and the Psalms. And... Uh, Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, uh, especially even in verse 27, Moses and the prophets, those were like the two bookends of the Old Testament. And so he's saying Moses from the beginning and then the prophets to the end and everything in between is all about Jesus. It's all about our Lord and Savior. Bill Mounts, William Mounts says that Jesus is the one to whom the entire Old Testament points, and the one for whom Israel longs. 
Again, it's all about the story of Jesus. And so categorically speaking, the entire Old Testament is about the Messiah. And he says all of those things, and we're going to get into some of the details in a moment here. All of those things must be fulfilled. Notice his wording at the very end of verse 44. They must be fulfilled. Not that they would be fulfilled or will be fulfilled, but he chooses his word very specifically, very intently. It was absolutely essential that all of the Old Testament scriptures be fulfilled in the person and work of Christ. It must be this way. Again, fulfill is to fill up to the fullest, to complete, to accomplish, to fully carry out is the idea. Jesus said in Matthew 26, 56, that all this has taken place in order that the scriptures of the prophets would be fulfilled. So the, pro- the, the prophecies and the promises of the Old Testament, and there are many, are seen as authoritative. That's why he says they must be. Why are the prophecies and the promises authoritative and binding? Why must they be fulfilled? Because of the source. It's because God said so. And if God says so, it must be so. Because it's from him. It's from the one who is sovereign over all things. If he declares it, like Babe Ruth, when he pointed to the stands before he took that swing, and he said, I'm going to hit a home run now, and he just did, because he was that good. Oh, that pales in comparison to our God, who declares the end from the beginning. He stood, as it were, at the beginning of time and said, here's how it's going to be at the end of time. And it's just, it's, we're just going along with the plan church and we just have one little chapter as it were in that plan it was necessary that Christ would come to die for his people it was necessary that he would rise again from the dead because God said it would happen the prophecies in the Old Testament had to be fulfilled because of their source they came from God they were authoritative and binding because he is the authority over the course of history so Christian I I, I just want to emphasize this point that you can read the Old Testament and see Christ there all over the place if you have the eyes of faith and if you understand what you're looking for because you have the light of the New Testament But also you can see the promises and the prophecies and and there's still things yet to happen in the course of history. And you can have great confidence that no matter who wins the election, no matter who wins the game, nor anything else, no matter what disappointment comes your way, it's all going according to plan. And that's how Christ wants to encourage his, his men here, his disciples. Not only... Does he point to the fulfillment of Scripture as a source of their encouragement to be his ambassadors? But he also points to to the fact that forgiveness would be proclaimed. That's number two this morning. Forgiveness proclaimed. So Jesus 
says, you know, that this is all going according to plan. I, I've told you what would happen. The Old Testament told you all that would happen. It's going, it don't, you didn't need to freak out. You didn't need to be hopeless and filled with despair. It, it's going the way that I knew it was going to go and the way that, that the scriptures told you it was going to go the whole time. Well, what are those things? What is the emphasis? What's the main thing of all of these prophecies? And what does Jesus communicate to them to give them great encouragement to be his ambassadors? Verse 45, it begins, Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Jesus, here it says, gave them understanding. He opened their minds. And the way he opened their minds was by explaining what the scriptures taught. Now, yes, there is a supernatural opening of the spiritual eyes of his disciples here in this moment. But that is coupled with the straightforward explanation of the words and the meanings of the Old Testament text. So he doesn't just, you know, magically, supernaturally open their minds and they just understand it all. He gives them understanding. He allows them and enables them to perceive what he's about to teach them. And then class starts. Then they have to do the study. Then they have to, to learn. The reality is that uh, it says even in verse 27, or look at verse 25. He said to them, Luke 24, verse 25, O, o foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? It, it should have happened this way. You shouldn't have been surprised. This is the story all along. And then, verse 27, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, notice, he interpreted to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. He did exegesis. He did exposition. He just opened the word with them and just taught and preached them. Here's what happened. Here's what that means. Here, here's where I show up. And here's this theme of redemption. That's, that's what I came to fulfill and to accomplish. Here's the sacrifices. That's me. Here's the priest, the high priest. That's me. Here's the tabernacle. That's me. And he just connects the dots. And that's exactly what it means when it says uh, that he opened their minds to understand. To understand is to put things together, to fit things together. Uh, we might say today in our lingo to connect the dots. And that's the idea. Jesus taught them and connected the dots between the Old Testament to him. The idea is to comprehend, to, to grasp truth with your mind, with your intellect. And we, we know from Acts 1-3 that 40 days that he was with them over the course of 40 days speaking about the things concerning the kingdom of God. So this was a crash course of seminary, you could say. Jesus was with the disciples for 40 days, over and over again. Class was in session, class was in session, and they just learned 
uh, about Christ from the Old Testament. And he, he taught them, over, oh, oh, to be a fly on the wall during those 40 days. And Christian, you might think, well, you know, that's why I have such a hard time. I don't have Jesus teaching me here. <laughs> and, you know, maybe he's not opening my mind to understand. But I want to encourage you. First John 5.20 says that we know that the Son of God has come. And that he has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. Christian, you can know with certainty that Christ is the Son of God. And that the Son of God has come and purchased your redemption. And how can you know this? Because Christ has given you understanding so that you would know Him. How did He do that? He sent His Spirit. And every single Christian has the Spirit within him or her there as a witness and a tutor and a teacher to constantly open the believer's mind to the truth of Scripture. That's called illumination. And so, Christian, you're not missing out on anything. You have the same Holy Spirit that the disciples did in that day for those 40 days. They just studied really hard. And so, I would encourage you, you want to know Jesus more. You want to get deeper in your relationship with him. It, it, it's, it, it's, just, it's going to be the same way that it was for the disciples. You're going to open the scriptures. You're going to call out to, to God to, to help you understand what you're reading and to connect the dots to Christ. And you're just going to get your nose into the word of God and you're not going to leave until you understand. So what about Christ? is spoken of in the Old Testament. What about Christ is fulfilled in his life? Well, he says, Thus it is written that Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. First, it was written in the Old Testament that the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the, the Redeemer of God's people, the King of God's people would suffer. Well, he suffered the pain of betrayal. Psalm 41, 9 anticipated this. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, whom, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. It anticipated Christ's sufferings in his physical beatings. In Isaiah 50, verse 6, I gave my back to those who strike me, and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not hide my face from dishonor and spitting. The Old Testament anticipated Christ's suffering in his crucifixion. In Psalm 22, 16, where it says, Dogs have surrounded me, and a band of evildoers have encompassed me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. But ultimately, the Old Testament anticipated Christ's suffering uh, to a much greater degree in that he, in, on the cross, would bear our sins. In Isaiah 53, verse 5, it says, He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
and the chastening for our peace fell upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. So we see that the sufferings of Christ is nothing new to the, Old, to the, new, to the new Testament. It's been there the whole time in the Old Testament. And we see the life and the suffering of Christ fulfilling that. That he ultimately would not just suffer shame and, and, and ridicule and, and pain and betrayal, but that he would suffer the weight of the guilt of our sins upon his back. That God would strike him so that we might be healed. Not only was the suffering of Christ anticipated, but his resurrection. Well, first, it was anticipated in the Old Testament that Christ would be buried. In Isaiah 53, verse 9, it says, So his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. And we know from the Gospels that that's exactly what happened. He was given a rich man's tomb. But he didn't stay there because the Old Testament anticipated that after three days he would rise again. Uh, this is what Jonah, the, the story of Jonah alludes to. In Matthew 12, verse 40, Jesus says, Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He was anticipating his resurrection. And he was pointing back to the story of Jonah as the picture, the type of uh, the type of Christ, as he, as it were, came back to life from certain death out of the belly of the sea monster. The Old Testament anticipated that Christ would be raised from the grave. In Psalm 16.10, it says, For you will not forsake my soul to Sheol, you will not give your Holy One over to destruction, to see corruption, excuse me. This is fulfilled in, in the life, in the resurrection of Christ. Because the Father did not forsake Jesus, rather he accepted his sacrifice. And his acceptance, rather than, in, than his forsaking, is proven in the resurrection. The resurrection validates Christ for all that he said that he is and would accomplish in his death. And then, lastly, the Old Testament anticipated that not only, not only would he rise from the grave, but he would ascend into glory. In Psalm 68, 18, it says, You have ascended on high, and you have led captive your captives. And that verse is quoted in reference to Christ in, in, the, in the letter to the Ephesians. So what we see here, church, is that the incarnation the life, the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was, it was not plan B. It was always the plan. What does this mean for you, Christian? This means that God had decreed, He has decreed your redemption, your salvation from long before time began. You're part of the plan too, Christian. He named you before you were a thought in your parents' mind. He named you and plucked you out from humanity. And the fact that you can worship Him, the fact that you have a new heart, 
that loves God and wants to obey Him is proof that before time He chose you. He set His love and His his affection on you and it was just a matter of time until He stopped you in your tracks and He captured your heart, Christian. In eternity past, our God has ordained that His people would be His beloved children bought by the blood of His Son. But what else is fulfilled? Verse 47, And that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name. We don't often think of this, but Jesus does. Then another thing spoken of in the Old Testament that is fulfilled in the New Testament and even in the, the church age in which we live is the proclamation of the gospel to all the nations. It was anticipated from the Old Testament that this News of salvation, the gospel of Jesus Christ would go out to the world. Not just that it would happen, that, not just that Jesus would come and accomplish our salvation, but even that we would be his instruments to bring the gospel to the world. So, Christian, every time you evangelize, in a sense, you fulfill Scripture, the anticipation and the prophecies of Old Testament Scripture. Every time you evangelize. In a sense. It's because this proclamation of the gospel to all the nations. Who does that? We do. God does. And he does it through us. Christian, you are an essential part of the fulfillment of this global evangelism. That the Old Testament anticipated all along. Namely, that when people repent of their sins and place their faith in Christ's atoning work, they receive the forgiveness of sins. That message and its going out was anticipated for ages past in the Old Testament. This message that we are to repent. Repentance is nothing new to the Bible. Job repented. Job 42.6 says, Therefore I reject myself and I repent in dust and ashes. What does it mean to repent unto salvation? You reject yourself. That's what it means. I turn my back on not just my old ways, but me. I turn my back on living for me. And living for God alone. And we are to commit to be saved. We are to repent and commit to remove evil from our lives. And to stop sinning. That's what repentance includes. A changed life. Isaiah 1, 16 and 17 says, Wash yourselves, purify yourselves, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. That's the Christian life, is ceasing to do evil, learning to do good. That's discipleship. That is the life of the follower of Christ. That's what it means to come to God in faith and repentance. And the Old Testament anticipated 
the, what, that what Christ would accomplish in his life, death, burial, and resurrection is salvation. And that this salvation is found in repentance and faith. Isaiah 30, verse 15, says, In repentance and rest, or the idea of faith, in repentance and rest you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your might. Oh, dear sinner, are you exhausted from trying to change your life? Are you just weary and heavy laden and it's just everything you do comes up empty? You can keep the form of it for a time, but eventually the energy runs out and you just can't keep up appearances anymore. You can only modify your behavior for so long. And even your addictions and your enslavements to certain things in this life, you, even quote-unquote victory over those addictions, you find that you're just addicted to something else and enslaved to something else. Are you exhausted with trying to find true freedom? God says, in repentance and rest you will be saved. That might is found, strength is found in quietness and trust. Cast yourself upon Christ in faith. Trust Him that the change is going to come from Him. And you give your life to Him in faith. And you say, I trust you not only to save me, but to rule my life. There is salvation there for you, Christian. God promises, let the wicked forsake his way. Isaiah 55, verse 7, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to Yahweh and he will have compassion on him and come to God for he will abundantly pardon Oh, you can't out-sin God's grace. You just need to turn. Turn from yourself. Turn to God. And the promise of God is to grant us forgiveness. You see, forgiveness is, the idea is to release something, to not hold on to, or even to send something away. And in His mercy and grace, God forgives our sins so that we are cleansed from their guilt. Jeremiah 33 verse 8 says, I will cleanse them from all their iniquity by which they have sinned against me, and I will pardon all their iniquities. Isaiah 43 25, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Why does God save sinners? For His namesake. It's to turn you into a worshiper. See, that's why you have to turn from self and turn to God. Because that's what it means to be a follower of God. It's all about Him. And even my salvation is for Him. And praise be to God that in Christ all of this promise of salvation is fulfilled. It is reality. And we can take the promises of, of the Old Testament like Psalm 103, verse 10 through 12, where it says, He has not dealt with us according to our sins. He has not rewarded us according to our iniquities. Why? 
For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. I said this before, God in his wisdom doesn't say as far as the north is from the south. Because there's a point where if you travel north, you eventually stop going north and you start going south. There's an end to it. And vice versa, if you, if you start flying on a plane, go south, there's a point where you start going north again. But God in his wisdom knows that if you go east, you never stop going east around the globe. And if you go west, you never, there's never a point where you start going east. It's eternal. And he says, that's how far your, I've taken your transgressions and cast them away. That's how far they are from us. And that message, church, this is what must go to all the nations. Jesus says again in our passage uh, at the end of verse 47 that this is to go to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. From the Old Testament, again, from the Old Testament, God's eye was always toward the nations. Even in the Old Testament, Psalm 67, 2, that your way may be known on the earth, your salvation among all nations. It's been the plan. Global evangelism and your personal evangelism on this side of the globe is part of the plan. Isaiah 52.10, Yahweh has bared his holy arm, that is his strength, of, and, and, and that is Christ. Yahweh has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. That's what God desires. That's God's plan. That's where history is going. Church, we have to make sure that we are on board with the course of history lest the train pass us by. And we praise God for in this church, missions is uh, something that is, there, there's never been a shortage in our missions fund. I praise the Lord for the brothers and sisters of this church that have owned that calling, that have owned this responsibility that has been placed upon the church. The Apostle Paul, the disciples, the church, was commissioned by Christ to go to the nations, and so are we. What does that look like? Well, he says, verse 48, you are witnesses of these things. You are witnesses of these things. So just as the Apostle Paul and the rest of the disciples were commissioned to proclaim the gospel of Christ to the lost, so we are as well. And preaching and proclamation is the method that God has chosen to get the gospel out. Romans 10, 13 to 15. But the question is, do you need a pulpit in order to proclaim the gospel? No, you don't. The primary mode of the, of the gospel going out and the primary mode of, of proclamation is the pulpit in the life of the church. It's a non-negotiable, but so also is it not negotiable that the voice of God's people proclaim the good news. 
And that's because he says, you're witnesses. Now, when you think of a witness today, in our day and age, think of a witness in a courtroom, uh, what's the significance of a witness? Why is he or she called into the courtroom? Is it because they wrote a dissertation on the topic of murder or theft or whatever other crime is being dealt with? Is it because they have some really good ideas about what could have happened? No, that's not the function of a witness, is it? A witness is someone who has seen and heard things personally and therefore can testify about those things in a personal way. The emphasis, Christian, is that this is personal. You are to testify of what Christ has done for you and in you. That's what it means. It's simple. What did Jesus do? Well, God made me and created me to live for him, but I rebelled against him. And he should have judged me for all eternity. But in his grace, God sent his only begotten son. And he sent him in order to die on, on the cross. And when, he, when Jesus died on the cross, he was not dying because he was a, a, a criminal. He was dying in my place. On the cross, Jesus was, was drinking in all of the guilt and the judgment and the wrath that I deserve for all of my sins. And he drank it to the last drop there on the cross. And, you know, I heard that. And, I, you know, I lived my own life for years. But uh, when I heard that, the Lord just opened my eyes. And, and I was just struck with that. That was for me. And, you know, God has given me a new heart. And, and now I love him. Now I desire him. Now I, now I want to get into the word. I want to be with his people. I'm going to do whatever he tells me to do. And I know that one day I'm going to be with him in heaven. That's all you have to say, Christian. What did he do for you? What has he done in you? Has he forgiven you of your sins? Tell somebody. Has he saved you from a life of corruption? Tell somebody. Has he been your all-satisfying source of life? Tell somebody. That's all he expects of you. Just be a witness. And if you have trouble formulating that, just go to Acts chapter 26 and just look at what Paul did. He just outlines, here's, my personal testimony, I had a life before conversion, here's what happened when I was converted, and then here's the changes in my life after conversion. Acts 26, and he just lays it out, it's a personal testimony. And you can say, wow, I was a lot like that, and here's how it looked for me though. And then that's your testimony, that's your witness. Church, evangelism, one, one, one pastor says this, evangelism is not an option to be accepted or rejected by the church. Outreach is a command. Evangelism is not limited to the gifted or to the church leadership. It is the mission of the entire church. 
To the truly faithful, evangelism is not merely a command, but a compulsion. Maybe the reason why you're not compelled to be a witness is one, you have nothing to say because you have nothing to testify of. Or maybe you've forgotten and you've grown dull to all that God has done for you in Christ. Oh, don't forget. And Jesus says, that's what you go with. And this is what I accomplished. I accomplished your forgiveness, my disciples. Be encouraged. You have a message of hope, a message of life. But one last encouragement that Jesus gives his disciples is the Father's promise. He says in verse 49, And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. This promise of the Father is the promise of the Holy Spirit. That He was with them, but now He will be in them. And this was anticipated, again, in the Old Testament. It's all going according to plan. Uh, Joel 2.28, for example, where it says, It will be afterwards that I will pour out my Spirit on all mankind. And you can jot down Isaiah 44, verse 3 as well. Why does Jesus remind his disciples of that promise of the Holy Spirit here in this moment? It goes back to the whole context. It goes back to the setting. He's trying to to lift them out of that despair. He's trying to lift them out of their hopelessness and their despondency because he knows if they stay there, they're not going to be used. They're they're not going to go and evangelize. So he says, no, you can't stay there. You can't be quiet. You can't stay huddled up in this upper room. You must go. And to encourage you, one last time, I want to remind you that the Holy Spirit will give you power. He says, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power. Notice that they had to wait for the Holy Spirit. Why? Because without the Holy Spirit, we are unable and powerless to be effective witnesses of Christ. The Spirit gives us the truth of the gospel. He points to Christ as the all-sufficient Savior. He causes sinners to be born again. He gives life to a dead heart as we proclaim the gospel. So we can't go out without Him. And he says, wait until you are clothed with power from on high. And indeed, this is what happened on the day of Pentecost. There where uh, the disciples of Christ were filled with the Holy Spirit. And what was the immediate reaction? What, was, what did they do? They proclaimed a sermon. <laughs> right? They proclaimed in all these so that the gospel would get out as quickly as it could to these nations. Now, church, I want to encourage you to evangelize through the words of Christ here in the fact that you are clothed with power from on high. You don't have to wait for God to zap you. You have the promise of the Holy Spirit. If you are a Christian, you have the promise and you have that power within you. Not you, but because of the Spirit who is in you. We are all clothed with power from on high because because we are all uh, uh, 
filled and, and uh, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But the question is this. We are clothed with power from on high to do what? Are we clothed with power of God? Are we, are, or do we, we seek the power of the Holy Spirit to manifest our dreams or our destiny? Do we seek the power of the Holy Spirit to create health or prosperity in our lives? Absolutely not. He says, Jesus says, we are clothed with the power of the Holy Spirit, church, in order to be Christ's witnesses. That's why. And that should give us much encouragement to be his witnesses. It's all gone according to plan. And this message that we bring is the message of the entire Bible, not just some new idea. And not only that, but it's a message of forgiveness and grace in Christ. It's a message of life and of hope and, and, and salvation. And so we have much encouragement to, that we have a good thing to bring to the world. And we, all are, we are also encouraged by the fact that we are all clothed with the power of the Holy Spirit. That we don't go when we go out and evangelize, we don't go alone. We go with the Spirit of God. And He empowers us to communicate the gospel simply yet clearly. And the effect of that, if there's going to be any change in that person that we give the gospel to, it's going to come from Him, not from us. And we have great hope that the power is there if we just open our mouths. So be encouraged, Christian. God is with you. God can use you to evangelize the lost. There is much, much encouragement for Christ's witnesses in this passage. And we can see that was Jesus' intent by the result. Let me close with this. At the very end of the book, in verse 50, he led them out as far as Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And it happened that while he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were continually in the temple blessing God. So this chapter ends with a very different tone, doesn't it? Where it started with these losers on Emmaus Road. We had hoped that it was going to happen, but all hope is lost. To now, filled with joy. Instead of the disciples being filled with despair and doubt and hopelessness and even unbelief, they are now overcome with great joy and hope and worship and happiness. And notice where they were. In the temple. Why is that significant? Well, Luke writes the, the, writes the account of Acts. He writes the book of Acts as well. And where is the starting point of every evangelistic effort in the book of Acts? The temple. So they got up out of their hopelessness and they said, we got a job to do. Let's go to the temple, beginning in Jerusalem, and let's evangelize. You can see the effect. And so church, I trust that it would have the same effect upon your hearts and minds today. That you would realize, I have a job to do. 
We have a task. We have a commission that is to bring the gospel to the world. And it starts in my home. It starts in my neighborhood. It starts at my workplace. It starts in the city. We have a task to bring this message of forgiveness to the lost. And we don't go alone. And even as we do go and evangelize, we are part of the fulfillment of Old Testament scripture. God through you. So let us not forget that no matter what happens this afternoon, no matter what trial you may face, no matter what kind of opposition the church may face, we are on the winning side. Christ has won the victory for us, and we stand in his victory, and we proclaim his victory over sin and death to the world. Stand with me, if you would, as we pray. Heavenly Father, O Lord, You know our hearts, how we can just get all in our own mind, and especially when we uh, are encountered with difficulty, whether it's personal or health or relationships or disappointments in any avenue of life. You know our hearts that we can just throw in the towel so easily, and we can, we, we, we can quickly forget uh, our main task. And we are here to be your ambassadors. Oh Lord, forgive us for neglecting that if we have. I pray, Lord, that you will encourage your people to be faithful witnesses of Christ. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's sing.